Section 16 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 9, by Agnes and Elizabeth Trickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 5, Part 2. Mary Beatrice was highly gratified with the papal brief or letter addressed to her by the head of her church on the birth of her son, assuring her that the great blessing had been obtained from heaven by his fervent prayers and supplications in her behalf. Her majesty was so polite as to take this for fact, and forgetting all the personal affronts and political ill offices which that pontiff had put both on herself as a daughter of the house of Este, and on the king her husband as the friend of Louis the Fourteenth, responded in the following dutiful epistle. Mary Beatrice to the Pope as great as my joy has been for the much sighed for birth of a son it is signally increased by the benign part which your holiness has taken in it shown to me with such tender marks of affection in your much prized brief or apostolic letter which has rejoiced me more than aught beside seeing that he that is the prince is the fruit of those pious vows and prayers which have obtained from heaven this unexpected blessing whence these springs within me a well-founded hope that the same fervent prayers of your holiness that have procured me this precious gift will be still powerful to preserve him to the glory of god and for the exaltation of his holy church for this purpose relying on the benignity of your holiness to grant the same to me i prostrate myself with my royal babe at your holy feet entreating that your holiness's apostolic benediction may be bestowed on both of us your most obedient daughter maria r at london the third of august sixteen eighty eight for the first two months the existence of this dearest boon of heaven as the royal parents called their son appeared to hang on a tenure to the full as precarious as the ephemeral lives of the other infants whose births had tantalized mary beatrice with maternal hopes and fears those children having been nourished at the breast it was conjectured that for some constitutional reason the natural aliment was prejudicial to her majesty's offspring and they determined to bring the prince of wales up by hand this morning says the nuncio i have had the honour of seeing him whilst they gave him his food which he took with a good appetite he appears to me very well complexioned and well made the said aliment is called water gruel it is composed of barley flour water and sugar to which a few currants are sometimes added a very unsuitable condiment for a tender infant as the result proved violent fits of indigestion produced inflammation and other dangerous symptoms and he was sent to richmond for a change of air but as they continued to feed him on currant gruel he grew from bad to worse the young prince lives on writes the ellis correspondent but is a weakly infant at richmond the queen who was going to bath deferred her journey and came frequently to see him she attributed his illness to the want of a nurse and the improper food with which they were poisoning rather than nourishing him the state to which i saw my son reduced by this fine experiment says her majesty would deter me from ever allowing it to be tried on the children of others when he had been fed in this way till he was about six weeks old he became so dangerously ill with colic attended with vomiting and convulsions that they thought every sigh would be his last 
we had sent him to richmond a country house to be brought up under the care of lady powis his governess and he got so much worse that she expected every moment to be his last i got into my coach with the determination of going to him at all events lady powis had sent word to us that if the infant died she would dispatch a courier to spare us from the shock of coming to the house where he was every man we met by the way i dreaded was the courier king james accompanied his anxious consort on this journey and participated in all her solicitude and fears when the royal parents reached the riverside they feared to cross and sent a messenger forward to inquire whether their son were alive that they might not have the additional affliction of seeing him if he were dead after a brief but agonizing pause of suspense word was brought to them the prince is yet alive and they ventured over when we arrived continues the queen we found my son still living i asked the physicians if they had yet hopes of doing anything for him they all told us they reckon him as dead i sent into the village in quest of a wet nurse that is she who suckled him i gave him that nurse he took her milk it revived him and she has happily reared him but this peril was not the least of those which have befallen him in the course of his history which like ours will appear to those who shall read it hereafter like romance the same morning came colonel sands the equerry of the princess anne from tunbridge wells charged with a complimentary inquiry after the health of the prince of wales her brother his real mission was that of a creeping spy he arrived immediately after their majesties and encountered the queen coming from her sick infant's apartments with her eyes swollen with excessive weeping having altogether the appearance of the most passionate grief she passed on without speaking or noticing him and went to her own chamber this was evidently when the prince had been given up by the physicians and before the arrival of his village nurse sands concluding from what he had seen that the little prince was in the agonies of death stole unobserved into the nursery where if he is to be credited he saw mrs de la Beatty, the nurse kneeling beside the cradle with her hood drawn round her face weeping and lamenting over a pale livid and apparently dying infant whose features were spotted and convulsed but before he got more than a transient glimpse lady strickland came flying out of the inner room in a great passion asked him angrily what he did in her prince's nursery and without waiting for a reply unceremoniously pushed him out lady strickland has in consequence been described as a notable virago a character by no means in accordance with the sweet and feminine expression of her face in Lely's beautiful portrait of her at sizer castle but even if it be true that she expelled the prowling spy with lively demonstrations of contempt when she found him hovering like a vulture on the scent of death so near her royal charge she only treated him according to his deserts sands goes on to say that as he was retiring he met the king who asked him with a troubled countenance if he had seen the prince sands according to his own account told his sovereign an untruth by replying that he had not although aware that he must stand convicted of the falsehood as soon as lady strickland should make her report of his intrusion into the royal nursery he has written himself down at any rate as a shameless and unscrupulous violator of the truth and in the same spirit goes on to say that the king's countenance cleared up 
that he invited him to dinner and after dinner bade him go and see the prince who was better but on being conducted into the nursery he saw in the royal cradle a fine lovely babe very different from that which he had got a glimpse of in the morning so that he verily believed it was not the same child but one that had been substituted in the place of it for it was very lively and playing with the fringe of the cradle quilt if there be any truth in the story at all it is probable that the colonel saw the royal infant in the agonies of a convulsion fit in the morning and that when he saw him again in the afternoon it was after it had received the nourishment for which it had pined and a favorable change had taken place the distortion of the features had relaxed and the blackness disappeared which allowing for the exaggeration of an untruthful person is quite sufficient to account for the change in its aspect the animation of the lately suffering babe and its alleged employment of playing with the fringe of the counterpane is not so easy to reconcile with natural causes as no infant of that tender age is wont to display that sort of intelligence be this as it may colonel sands pretended that the real prince of wales died in the morning and that the lively boy he saw in the afternoon was substituted in his place lloyd bishop of st asaph added to this story the grave context that the royal infant who according to his account and burnett's had almost as many lives as a cat was buried very privately at chiswick the princess anne though she greatly patronized the romance of the warming pan was exceedingly pleased with colonel sand's nursery tale till in her latter years she began to discourage those about her from repeating it by saying she thought colonel sands must have been mistaken burnett has represented this prince of wales as the fruit of six different impostures the nurse whom the queen prompted by the powerful instincts of maternity had introduced to her suffering infant to supply those wants which the cruel restraints of royalty had deprived herself of the sweet office of relieving was the wife of a tile-maker of richmond she came in her cloth petticoat and waistcoat with old shoes and no stockings but being a healthy honest person she was approved by the doctors and still more so by the little patient to whom she proved of more service than all the physicians in his august father's realm she immediately became an object of the royal gratitude and bounty gold of which she was too unsophisticated a child of nature to comprehend the value was showered upon her and her coarse weeds were exchanged for garments more meet to come in contact with the precious nursling who was so daintily lapped in purple and fine linen but these changes were gradually and cautiously made she is new rigged out by degrees writes one of the courtiers that the surprise may not alter her in her duty and care one hundred pounds per annum is already settled upon her and two or three hundred guineas already given which she says she knows not what to do with the queen remained with her boy at richmond till the ninth of august when he was considered sufficiently recovered to accompany her to windsor and she determined never again to allow him to be separated from her on saturday last writes the ellis correspondent his royal highness the prince of wales was removed from richmond to windsor where he is lodged in the princess of denmark's house which was mrs ellen gwynne's and is well recovered of his late indisposition to the joy of the whole court his highness's nurse is also in good health and good plight being kept to her old diet and exercise 
she hath also a governess allowed her an ancient gentlewoman who is with her night and day at home and abroad many pretty stories of the simplicity and innocency of this nurse were circulated in the court other tales of a less innocent character connected with the prince and his foster mother were spread by the restless malignity of the faction that had conspired long before his birth to deprive him of his regal inheritance it was said that the tile-maker's wife was the real mother of the infant who was cradled in state at windsor for whom like the mother of moses she had been cunningly called to perform the office of a nurse the likeness of the young prince to both his parents was so remarkable that it seems as if the good goddess nature had resolved that he should carry in his face a satisfactory vindication of his lineage sir godfrey kneller long after the revolution had fixed william and mary on the throne having gone down to oxford to paint the portrait of dr wallace while that gentleman was sitting to him on hearing him repeat one of the absurd inventions of lloyd touching the birth of the disinherited prince of wales stating he was the son of a bricklayer's wife burst into the following indignant oration in contradiction to this assertion what the devil the prince of wales the son of act bricklayer alman it is von lie i am not of his party nor shall not be for him i am satisfied with what the parliament has done but i must tell you what i am sure of and in what i cannot be mistaken his vader and mutter have sat to me about thirty-six time apiece and i know every line and bit in their faces i could paint king james just now by memory i say the child is so like both that there is not a feature in his face but what belongs either to father or mother and this i am sure of and continued he with an oath i cannot be mistaken nay the nails of his fingers are his modders the queen that is doctor you may be out in your letters but and here he repeated his strong asseveration i cannot be out in my lines the queen deeply piqued by the coolness of the princess of orange when reluctantly compelled to mention the prince of wales was prompted by the fond weakness of maternity to expostulate with her on her want of affection for her unwelcome brother in answer to the princess's letter by the post she writes windsor august seventeenth even in the last letter by the way you speak of my son and the formal name you call him by i am confirmed in the thoughts i had before that you have for him the last indifference the king has often told me with a great deal of trouble that as often as he has mentioned his son in his letters to you you never once answered anything concerning him the princess of orange has endorsed this tender but reproachful letter with this cautious sentence answered that all the king's children shall never find as much affection and kindness from me as can be expected from children of the same father the parental cares and anxieties of the king and queen for the health of their son appear to have been so engrossing as to have distracted their attention from every other subject they entered his nursery and shut out the world and its turmoils while every day brought the gathering of the storm clouds nearer the king of france sent bon Rideau once more to warn king james that the dutch armament was to be directed against his coasts and that not only the emperor but the pope and many of his own subjects were confederate with his son-in-law against him repeating at the same time 
his offer of French ships and forces for his defense. James haughtily refused the proffered succors and obstinately refused to give credence to the agonizing truth that ambition had power to rend asunder the close ties with which heaven had united him with those who were compassing his destruction. The unfortunate Duke of Norfolk, when betrayed by his servants, had said, I die because I have not known how to suspect. James fell because he could not believe that his own children were capable of incurring the guilt of parricide. That he imputed different feelings to Mary may be gathered from his frequent and tender appeals to her filial duty and affection, from the time when the veil was at last forcibly removed from his eyes as regarded the purpose of William's hostile preparations. With the fond weakness of parental love, he fancied her into the passive toy or reluctant victim of a selfish and arbitrary consort, and wrote to her in sorrow, not in anger. And he never doubted. William Penn, always a faithful and generally a wise counsellor, advised his majesty to summon a parliament. James declared his intention to do so, in spite of the opposition of Father Petre, and issued the writ, August 24th, for it to meet on the 17th of November. He had delayed it too long. Sir Roger Strickland, the vice-admiral of England, sent an express from Downs, September 18th, that the Dutch fleet was in sight. Up to that moment, James had remained unconvinced that the naval armament of his son-in-law was preparing for his destruction. He had written on the preceding day to William. I am sorry there is so much likelihood of war on the Rhine, nobody wishing more the peace of Europe than myself. I intend to go tomorrow to London, and next day to Chatham, to see the condition of the new batteries I have made on the Medway, and my ships there. The Queen and my son are to be at London on Thursday, which is all I shall say, but that you shall find me as kind to you as you can expect. This letter is superscribed, For my son, the Prince of Orange. James had relied on his daughter's assurance that the hostile preparations of the prince were to be employed against France. As soon as he had read Strickland's dispatch, he hurried from Windsor to London and Chatham to take measures for the defense of the coast, leaving the queen to follow with her boy. They met at Whitehall on the 20th with boding hearts. The queen held her court on the Sunday evening. She was anxious to conciliate the nobility. That evening, Lord Clarendon says, I waited on the queen. She asked me where I had been, that she had not seen me a great while. I said, Her Majesty had been but three days in town. She answered, She loved to see her friends, and bade me come often to her. The next day, James told his brother-in-law Clarendon, That the Dutch were now coming to invade England in good earnest. I presumed to ask him, says the Earl, if he really believed it, to which the King replied with warmth, do I see you, my lord? And then after speaking of the numbers already shipped, he added, with some degree of bitterness, And now, my lord, I shall see what your Church of England men will do. And your majesty will see that they will behave themselves like honest men, rejoined Clarendon, though they have been somewhat severely used of late. The same day, the Lord Mayor and Aldermen came to make a dutiful compliment to the King and Queen on their return from Windsor. James received them graciously, and noticed the report of the expected Dutch invasion, bidding them not to be concerned, for he would stand for them, as he trusted they would by him. 
it was generally reported at this time that there was a prospect of her majesty being again likely to increase the royal family mary beatrice continued to correspond with the princess of orange at this agitating period on the twenty first she apologizes for not having written on the last post day because the princess anne came to see her after an absence of two months the last birthday commemoration in honor of mary beatrice ever celebrated in the british court was on the twenty fifth of september this year instead of the fifth of october old style as on previous occasions it was observed with all the usual tokens of rejoicing ringing of bells bonfires festivities and a splendid court ball hollow and joyless gaiety the dutch fleet was hovering on the coast and every one awaited the event in breathless suspense no one with a more anxious heart than the queen she wrote a touching and very temperate letter to her royal stepdaughter and once loving companion the princess of orange telling her that it was reported and had been for a long time that the prince of orange was coming over with an army but that till lately she had not believed it possible and that it was also said that her royal highness was coming over with him this her majesty protested she never would believe knowing her to be too good to perform such a thing against the worst of fathers much less against the best who she believed had loved her better than the rest of his children and he appealed to the natural affections and filial duty of the princess was as might have been expected unavailing yet mary beatrice wrote again in the anguish of her heart to her apathetic correspondent though she acknowledged that she dared not trust herself to speak on that which occupied her whole thoughts i do not well know what to say observes the agitated consort of james the second dissemble i cannot and if i enter upon the subject that fills everybody's mind i am afraid of saying too much and therefore i think the best way is to say nothing it is not often that queens unveil the conflicting emotions of a wounded and perturbed spirit with the childlike simplicity of poor mary deste this letter apparently the last the queen ever wrote to mary of orange is dated october fifth the day on which her majesty completed her thirty-first year an anniversary on which letters of a far different character had been heretofore exchanged by these two royal marys between whom the rival title of mary queen of great britain was so soon to be disputed king james was meanwhile vainly endeavouring to retrace his former rash steps an ill time proceeding in the hour of danger as it was certain to be construed into signs of fear and it was only by preserving a bold demeanour that he could hope to daunt his foes or to inspire his friends with confidence the period when he could with grace and dignity have restored charters published pardons and promised to redress all grievances was immediately after the birth of his son but he had allowed the golden opportunity to pass of endearing that object of paternal hope and promise to his people by making it the dove of a renewed covenant with them a pledge of his intention to preserve their affections and to preserve them for the sake of his son the bishops framed a loyal form of prayer to be read in all the churches that it might please almighty god to defend their most gracious king in this time of danger and to give his holy angels charge over him this was quite as much as james had any right to expect of his protestant hierarchy and considering the state of public opinion at that time it was an important service every day the aspect of affairs became more portentous 
and still the king of france persevered in pressing the offer of his fleet and army on james james said that he did not wish to be assisted by any one but his own subjects kennet ascribes the continued refusal of that prince to avail himself of the proffered succor to the operation of god's especial providence doubtless it was so but the paternal affection of james for his country was the means whereby that protective principle worked the last of our stuart kings was a scurvy politician a defective theologian an infatuated father and a despotic prince but with all these faults he had an english heart and he deemed it less disgraceful to submit to the humiliation of courting his offended prelates giving up the contest with oxford and doing everything to conciliate his subjects than to be the means of bringing a foreign army to assist him in working out his will having by his concessions and the proclamation that the elections for the parliament which he had summoned to meet in november were to be free and unbiased deprived as he imagined his subjects of an excuse for calling in foreign aid in vindication of their rights and his son-in-law of a plausible pretext for interference he fancied the storm might pass over without involving his realm in a civil war but he was bought and sold by his cabinet and his enemies were those that ate of his household bread treachery pervaded his council chamber and from thence diffused itself through every department of his government it was in his garrisons his army his fleet and the first seeds had been sown by those who derived their being from himself his daughters all this was known by almost every one in the realm but himself evelyn sums up the array of gloomy portents by which the birthday of james the second was marked at this crisis in the very spirit of a roman soothsayer save that he leaves the reader to draw the inference to which he points fourteenth of october the king's birthday no guns from the tower as usual the sun eclipsed at its rising this day signal for the victory of william the conqueror over harold near battle in sussex the wind which had been hitherto west was east all this day wonderful expectation of the dutch fleet public prayers offered to be read in the churches against invasion in the midst of these alarms the king with his usual want of tact caused the prince of wales to be solemnly named in the catholic chapel of st james's the pope represented by his nuncio count dada being godfather the queen dowager catherine of braganza godmother father Leyburn officiated this ceremonial is noticed by one of the court in these words the prince of wales was christened yesterday and called james francis edward pope's nuncio and queen dowager gossips the catholic court was fine and the show great the last name which ought to have been the first was dear to the historic memories of the people as connected with the glories of the warlike plantagenet sovereigns edward the black prince and the early promise of edward the fourth but james instead of allowing those associations to operate in favor of his son thought proper to specify that it was in honor of edward the confessor a monarch who stood just then almost as much at discount in popular opinion as himself all james's notions except that of universal toleration were six centuries behind the age in which he lived and in that he was a century and a half too early in wanting judgment to understand the temper of the times he made all other regal sciences useless what could be more unwise than inflicting on the heir of a protestant realm 
a godfather who was regarded by vulgar bigotry as satan's especial vicegerent upon earth who was conventionally anathematized and defied by three-fourths of the people whose scaramouche proxy was annually committed to the flames in company of that of guy fox at the national auto da fe of the fifth of november the name of francis had ostensibly been given to the prince in compliment to his uncle of modena but mary beatrice had also a spiritual godfather for her son saint francis xavier whose intercessions she considered had been very efficacious in obtaining for her the blessing of his birth in acknowledgment of the supposed patronage of the virgin mary on this occasion her majesty sent a rich offering to the shrine of loretto the italian education of mary d'este had rendered her unconscious of the fact that such practices are regarded by the protestant world as acts of idolatry by the musing antiquarian as vestiges of the superstitions of remote antiquity lingering in a land where votive gifts were presented at the altars of venus and juno and other pagan deities the earl of perth when speaking of the offerings to the shrine of our lady of loretto says by the by our queen's is the riches there as yet and will be so great a while as i believe confidential reports that the dutch fleet had been shattered and dispersed in one of the rough autumnal gales crowded the drawing-room at whitehall with deceitful faces once more the courtiers like persons in the ague intermitted in their homage according to the way of the wind they had a hot fit for loyalty on the sixteenth of october but the rumours of the dutch disasters were speedily contradicted and the royal circle visibly thinned in consequence the dutch prince the expected liberator had put forth his memorials explaining the causes of his coming at the end of which lurked the mainspring which impelled him to that resolution a determination to inquire into the birth of the pretended prince of wales in other words to endeavour to deprive his infant brother-in-law of his birthright under a shallow pretext that he was not born of the queen a pamphlet supposed to be written by dr burnett was distributed in england as a pendant to the declaration of the prince of orange entitled a memorial of the english protestants to the prince and princess of orange wherein after a long statement of the grievances king james had put on the nation it was set forth that the king and queen had imposed a spurious prince of wales on the nation and that it was evident because his majesty would never suffer the witnesses who were present at the queen's delivery to be examined other papers were disseminated asserting that the mother of the pretended prince of wales was coming over in the dutch fleet the charge respecting a spurious heir says sir james mackintosh was one of the most flagrant wrongs ever done to a sovereign or a father the son of james the second was perhaps the only prince in europe of whose blood there could be no rational doubt considering the verification of his birth and the unimpeachable life of his mother james has called his consort the chastest and most virtuous princess in the world to vindicate his claims to the paternity of his beloved son the last male scion of the royal line of stuart and to clear the queen of the odious imputation that was now publicly cast upon her by the self-interested husband of his eldest daughter appeared to james matters of greater moment than the defence of the crown he wore he determined to have the birth of the royal infant legally attested before he left london to take the command of his forces 
the feminine delicacy of mary beatrice revolted at the first proposition of a proceeding so painful to the womanly feelings of herself and the ladies who must be called upon to make depositions before a large assembly of gentlemen for she was aware that unless those depositions were minutely circumstantial they would be turned against her and her son she considered the plan suggested by the king derogatory to their mutual dignity and her own innocence and that the unprecedented number of honourable persons who had witnessed the birth of her son rendered circumstantial evidence needless one day however at a visit she made the princess anne she introduced the subject and said she wondered how such ridiculous reports could get into circulation anne answered very coldly that it was not much to be wondered at since such persons were not present as ought to have been there the queen was much surprised at this rejoinder which seems to have been the first thing that opened her eyes to the true source whence these injurious calumnies had proceeded it was obviously as much anne's policy to provoke a quarrel now as to imply the doubts of the verity of her brother's birth but quarrels are for the vulgar mary beatrice resolved to answer the innuendo by the testimony of the numerous witnesses who were present at her accouchment for this purpose an extraordinary council was convened on the twenty second of october in the great council chamber at whitehall where in the presence of prince george of denmark the archbishop of canterbury most of the peers spiritual and temporal the judges the great officers of the crown the lord mayor and aldermen of the city of london and the members of the privy council the queen dowager and all the persons who were present at the birth of the prince of wales being assembled the king addressed them with mournful solemnity in these words my lords i have called you together upon a very extraordinary occasion but extraordinary diseases must have extraordinary remedies the malicious endeavours of my enemies have so poisoned the minds of some of my subjects that by the reports i have from their hands i have reason to believe that very many do not think this son with which god hath blessed me to be mine but a supposed child but i may say that by particular providence scarce any prince was ever born where there were so many persons present i have taken this time to have the matter heard and examined here expecting the prince of orange with the first easterly wind will invade this kingdom as i have often ventured my life for the nation before i came to the crown so i think myself more obliged to do the same now i am king and do intend to go in person against him whereby i may be exposed to accidents and therefore i thought it necessary to have this done now in order to satisfy the minds of my subjects and to prevent this kingdom being engaged in blood and confusion after my death i have desired the queen dowager to give herself the trouble of coming hither to declare what she knows of the birth of my son and most of the ladies lords and other persons who were present are ready here to depose upon oath their knowledge of this matter the queen dowager and forty ladies and gentlemen of high rank whereof seventeen were catholics and three and twenty protestants besides the queen's midwife nurses and four physicians verified the birth of the young prince on oath the evidence of the following protestant ladies isabella countess of rosecommon anne countess of arran anne countess of sunderland lady isabella wentworth lady Bellasis, and mrs margaret dawson were so positive minute and consistent with that of the catholic ladies that if any real doubts had existed it must have set them at rest for ever
the princess anne had been requested to attend and had excused herself to her king and father under a false pretense that she was in that situation which she had accused the queen of feigning it was the sequel of her artful departure to bath that she might not be a witness of what she was determined to dispute the claims of a male heir to the crown and now my lords said the king although i do not question but that every person here present was satisfied before in this matter yet by what you have heard you will be able to satisfy others besides if i and the queen could be thought so wicked as to endeavour to impose a child upon the nation you see how impossible it would have been and there is none of you but will easily believe me who have suffered for conscience sake incapable of so great a villainy to the prejudice of my own children and i thank god that those who know me know well that it is my principle to do as i would be done by for that is the law and the prophets and i would rather die a thousand deaths than to do the least wrong to any of my children his majesty further said if any of my lords think it necessary the queen should be sent for it shall be done but their lordships not thinking it necessary her majesty was not sent for as the injurious doubts that had been cast on the birth of the young prince originated in malicious falsehood its verification had no other effect than to draw the coarsest ribaldry on the king and queen and their innocent babe the ladies who had had sufficient moral courage to attest the facts which exonerated their royal mistress from the calumnies of an unprincipled faction were especially marked out for vengeance the base lampooners of the faction dipped their pens in more abhorrent mud than usual to be splatter witnesses whose testimony was irrefragable the dignity of truth is however an adamant shield from which the shafts of vindictive falsehood will ever rebound to the disgrace of those who fling them End of section sixteen